Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Well, welcome to Dear Hank and John. Nerds, I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast about death, where my brother John and I answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. How you doing, John? I'm ill. I'm unwell, Hank. I was I was unwell You're last still week, sick. and this week my cold has settled into my into my chest for for a small amount of what appears to be bronchitis. Oh. I'm just not uh, I'm not feeling I'm not feeling great, but I'm excited. You know. It always lifts my spirits to be able to podcast with you. Oh, good. Oh, good. I have I have an update for you, John. Great. Last week, we discussed the uh, peculiarity and, uh, and potential disgustingness of putting water on cereal. Yes. And I uh, went to my house, got my frosted mini-wheats out, put some water on it, and ate them. And do you want to know how I felt about it, John? I do. Was it delicious? It was awful. It was so bad. Oh, that's disappointing. It's just not a good idea. I mean, why? You really didn't like it with water? No. So the thing is, like, yeah, it's, 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 milk is sweet. Milk has a sweetness, especially the milk I drink, which is almond milk. And, uh, and I've gotten used to that over, you know, my entire life. And when you put a thing that is not sweet has no sugar onto your cereal. It just tastes, it tastes almost bitter. And but 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 more than that, more than anything, it tastes empty. Like there's just no like there there's no richness to the flavor. Um, I encourage other people to try it because maybe you will feel differently than I do, and then you can have a lower calorie, less impactful breakfast meal. But it's not going to happen for me, John. That's disappointing, Hank. Because I just I stand by my original argument that cereal with water is a healthy and delicious solution to the how to uh, moisten my cereal problem. Right, and and who knows, maybe if everybody used water on their cereal, all the world's problems would be solved, John. Maybe. Hank, would you like me to read you a poem about death? That sounds like the kind of thing 
that you do. This poem uh, is by W.H. Auden. I've been thinking a lot about uh, memoriam poems, like poems written in memoriam, uh, memorial to, to other people, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. because been so, there's been so much death. It's January still. Actually, it's not. It's February. I guess now it's the least <laughs> deadly. Now it's the least deadly month. Yep, we're With there. January, the deadliest month for humans. February, the least deadly month, but only because it has so few days. Um, anyway, this is a great... Uh, Great poem by W.H. Auden. I apologize in advance for it not being shorter, but uh, it's still fairly short. Stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone, silence the pianos, and with muffled drum, bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let aeroplanes circle, moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message, he is dead. Put crepe bows round the white necks of the public doves, Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good. W.H. Auden with the poem often known as Stop All the Clocks, Cut Off the Telephone. Thanks for bringing us up here, John. Glad to glad to start the podcast off on the, uh, on the upbeat note. Yeah. It's, uh, no, it's, it's, uh, I was wrong about the title. It's, uh, it's actually called Funeral Blues. I really like, uh, I really like that poem, though. Um, it is a little dark. As I was reading it, I realized that it's a, it's a little bit sad. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I felt, uh, I felt the sadness. It was in me. It's still there, indeed. You know what I like about that poem, though, Hank? Just... Just real briefly, what I love about it is that uh, when people die, when you when people you love die, one of the things that I'm always struck by is that the world goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I remember like when we were burying our uh, grandfather, our, our father's father, I remember looking out at the street and just seeing all of the cars moving and thinking, well, that's very strange that the world is going on as if nothing has happened. Uh, and that W.H. Auden poem, like for me, is that is that like clarion call of like, this is what death should be, but of course, like can never be because, mm-hmm. because it's something that people do every day. Uh, anyway, sorry to start on a dark note. Let's move on to questions from our listeners. Uh, before we get to questions from our listeners, I, I have an idea uh, that we should uh, revisit a question we brought up a couple podcasts back, which is uh, whether or not, like, how much oil could have been saved if we made DVD cases yeah. the uh, appropriate size for fitting a DVD inside of and not the size that looks in the shape of a book or VHS tape, this rectangular shape that is completely arbitrary. We had two people write in uh, after having done significant research and or math to determine how much oil, in fact, we use. We had a response from Alex, who did this all with math. Um, And Alex says uh, that there have been approximately 24 million barrels of extra oil, uh, uh, mostly, uh, but uh, though equivalent, most of it is, uh, most plastic is apparently made with natural gas. I didn't know that. To produce the excess plastic in DVD cases since the inception of DVDs. Now, of course, that's it's a very round number, but that is uh, that's the the you know just sort of like back of the napkin calculation. That is a huge amount of oil, John, or uh, equivalent oil. That is a very large amount of oil. And then Aaron did a different set of calculation, 
And he came up with 200 million kilograms of oil, which is just under 1.5 million barrels. Regardless, uh, it's an extremely large amount of oil that was used to produce uh, the excess plastic in DVD cases. And I do have to think that when future generations look back upon us, the thing that they will be most baffled by is our inefficient use of resources. And whenever anyone points to me, uh, you know, some Econ 101 model of supply and demand, I always uh, want to reply by saying that, like, uh, you know, look at the massive, massive inefficiencies uh, in our existing economy of goods and services. It's just absolutely astonishing when you pause to think of it. But yeah, I'm sure that we will be remembered for uh, having produced so much unnecessary plastic, millions of <laughs> barrels of oil that took hundreds of millions of years to make, and uh, we just used them to make DVD cases look like VHS tapes. I'm curious if you want to know the reason why Aaron and Alex's numbers are so different, and also why Aaron, in his response, said that it's possible that we, in fact, have wasted no plastic. I am fascinated to know the answer to those questions. Uh, it is because when you are making plastic from natural gas, there are you are not just making plastic for, for DVD cases. You are making a bunch of different things. And all of those things have different uses. There's different kinds of plastic that get made. There's also uh, different byproducts that get used in other industrial processes. Um, there's just a ton of different things that get... So it's basically like thinking about... Instead of thinking about, like, this is a barrel of oil, 100% of it is going to be turned into plastic. That's not how it ends up working because of chemistry. It's like a cow, where you have a cow, and some of it's going to be ground beef, and some of it's going to be liver, and some of it's going to be uh, bone meal, and some of it's going to be steaks, and all those different parts are going to have different prices based on different markets... Um, and basically what, what Aaron is saying is according to a person that he talked to that works in this industry, um, his name was Chris, that uh, this plastic was kind of going to be produced anyway because all of the other things that, uh, that, that were you know, necessary, that were being bought of the, the byproducts of this natural gas were going to be bought anyway. So it's very like it, it's another way in which like, wow. Suddenly, the world is so much more complicated than it seemed. Um, Aaron also adds that there's a huge number of complexities, like the plastic wrap that goes around the DVDs, which is not technically necessary. There's, uh, like, the fact that DVDs sometimes are sleeved in cardboard for no reason other than product marketing. Uh, it's a, and it, it turns out to be very complicated. Also, uh, the, the big difference why those two numbers are so different is that Alex basically said uh, every barrel of oil that was involved in the creation of the plastic, whereas Aaron only focused on the fraction that that ended up becoming the plastic. Hank, as you know, uh, people come to our podcast largely to learn about plastic. Uh, <laughs> I'm like giddy. I, it's like, I, I think it's so fascinating. They come here oh, to learn man. about plastic and to hear incredibly depressing poems about death. <laughs> and here we are already having delivered. I uh, mean, and we've still got most of the podcast. It's been to go. 10 minutes. You can turn it off now. Everything you ever wanted out of a comedy podcast has been delivered here on Dear Hank and John. That was one of the funniest summaries of the use of plastic in DVD cases I have ever heard in my entire life. I, for <laughs> one, feel that I have gotten an ab workout just from laughing. <laughs>
Okay, now you can ask a question. Our first question uh, comes from Richard who asks, Dear John and Hank, I have, at the time of writing, 336 subscribers on YouTube. I'm happy and grateful for all the people that make up that number, but I often find myself daydreaming about all the things I would do if I had more than 2 million subscribers like you guys. So here's my question. What would you do if in a Freaky Friday-style body swap, you woke up and you only had 336 subscribers on YouTube? Would you still make the same kind of videos? I think, first of all, in that situation, my first concern would be my children and my spouse. <laughs> like, why? I would be like, why am I in another person's oh, right, body? Oh, yes, I see what you mean. And who am I now married to? And where are my children? And are they safe? Or did they also experience a body swap scenario? Uh, yes, that that is true. Uh, I, th I think maybe you want to think of it as not a, a body swap, but simply a channel swap. Uh, simply, <laughs> uh, but I do like, I want to like get to the mechanics of this because I want to figure out how the script of this movie will be written because I do want to watch it. Uh, but I feel like that's not Richard's question and we should focus on that. And I don't, I think it's so fascinating to think about, uh, because my life is so, uh, certainly my professional life is so focused on the existing audience that I have um, and that we have that and uh, that community that we have and, and like the that they are the reason why I push myself to make stuff why I you know like never don't do it and why you know and, and like knowing that there's that audience there drives me to make something that's not that's like that's accurate as possible like i'm putting this out into the world i'm affecting the world and i need to be responsible about that um and so like i'm just so like affected by this in so many ways that that trying to put myself into a world where let's say everything else is the same but i just don't have as many youtube subscribers but i'm still making content and i still am like i'm still a, a youtuber and like they still care a lot about this I think that I would probably make similar stuff, but I don't think that I would be able to work as hard on it as I do. I think that it's it that like the reason I work so hard on YouTube videos is because the audience is there. I would not make similar stuff. I mean, I think that you know, we had 200 subscribers or a, li a little less than 200 subscribers after our first 100 uh, YouTube videos uh, back in 2007. Mm -hmm. And I think I would have finished the year um I do not think I would have continued after that year. I think that it would have been like a cool experiment and I would have been really psyched about mm -hmm. all the uh, neat stuff that we'd done together and how much it had brought us closer as brothers. Um, and I think I might have continued. In fact, we sort of did that even with the 9,000 subscribers we ended up having at the end of 2007. We slowed way down. Mm -hmm. We went to a point where we were only making, you know, I would make a video one week, you would make a video the next week almost. Um, and... Uh, we did not have a schedule and I think that it would have kind of continued down that path until we were making videos very, very occasionally. Right, right. Um, I think you probably would have made more because you were always more invested in the m making videos part of making videos mm -hmm. and I was always more invested in the uh, the audience part of making videos. Um, I mean, I've never been a good video editor. I've never <laughs> been a particularly good YouTuber. Um, so I think... I would have stopped. And, I, and in general, like, it's very hard for me to make stuff uh, absent. Uh, if I don't have an audience or, or the hope of an audience, mm -hmm. it's very hard for me to make stuff. Right. The, the other thing I would say, like, the, what you said just now made me think a different thing about my answer, which is that, uh, like, I would be making different kinds of content I, and it would be more focused on 
uh, at the audience that was there. It would certainly be influenced by the audience that was there. And back when we had a smaller audience, there was more of a feel that that, you know, not just because it was smaller, also because it was early days of YouTube and people were really excited about it. But the fact that it was smaller made it easier for there to be a stronger community. And I think that that would be like, I would still be focusing on that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and like still also focusing on growing that audience. But, um, but having, I was just thinking today while I was shuffling my sidewalk free of all of the white stuff that falls out of the sky and, uh, about how like there was a moment in 2007 when like suddenly, and I, I've never said this publicly before. There was like a week in 2007 when suddenly I realized what we were doing was like bigger than just like people like me making content for other people and them making content for me and everybody's sort of on the same playing field. When I got like four different phone calls from people who said, did you know your phone number's in the phone book? Yeah. Because like freaky people could call you. And I was like, of course my phone number's in the phone book. I'm a person. Right. Like that's what the phone book's for. Right. It's, a, it's a book full of people's phone numbers. But, but there were like, but something had changed in enough people's minds that a bunch of people seemingly independent of each other looked me up in the phone book and were shocked to find that I would be publicly listed. And, and, and that was a, that was a thing that happened. I mean, I remember that week because it was the weirdest freaky Fridayest week of my whole life. Like I, I mean, I, I remember that vividly where all of a sudden it felt like it went from, uh, this very personal project with a small group of extremely, you know, the kind of like tight knit, uh, audience members who were essentially Mm -hmm. co co participants in the project to us making something for a big audience. Right. And, and it was interesting because I think our content got way better like in terms of being appealing to a broad audience immediately. It was almost like the new audience inspired us to think about making videos differently, but it also got in terms of it being, um, but it, it, yeah, it just changed dramatically. And I remember that week more vividly than I really almost any week of my life because it just felt like uh, this massive sort of, somewhat terrifying wave cresting over us. All right, I got another one. This one's from Emma Grace, who asks, Dear Hank and John, the other day I found a box of mac and cheese in the back of my pantry. It looked and seemed just about the same as any other box of Walmart brand mac and cheese I've had, but it had been expired for about a year. Since it was just powdered cheese and noodles, I ate it anyway, but many of my friends have since told me that I'm going to die. Am I going to die? Thanks. I mean, you're not going to die, but you have made a terrible, terrible mistake. I disagree with John, and so does science. No, uh, I don't care what science says. Uh, they put that. They put that. They put that uh, date there on a uh, for, for a reason. I feel anxious, Emma. Just, just from the overall situation, you should not eat out of date mac and cheese. Uh, you should not eat mac and cheese that you have cooked and left in the fridge for more than a week. Uh, because that is a problem. But uh, when the, the, uh, what you're concerned about is bacterial growth. Uh, this is not going to happen in dry macaroni and cheese. It's, what, what will happen is that the ingredients will oxidize. They will taste less good. So there will be things in there that, uh, that were once uh, one chemical that will have become other chemicals. Both of those chemicals are safe to eat. But, uh, 
but one of them might not taste as good as the other. So you are going to lose some flavor. That's what uh, on dry goods uh, the sell-by date is usually about. Uh, same with the uh, same with uh, sodas. Sodas have a sell-by date, but uh, but there's not they're not going to become unsterile on the inside. They are going to become less tasty. Uh, and that's uh, so that's what you want to watch out for. Uh, what you want to watch out for in terms of health is. Uh, is anything where a back where bacteria could grow, which uh, seems extremely unlikely inside of uh, powdered macaroni and cheese. Emma Grace, I want to emphasize that Hank is wrong and that you should not <laughs> eat out of date macaroni and cheese, no matter how confident he sounds in his uh, sciency talk. All right, this is such a great comedy podcast, Hank. I just I can't tell you when I look at the iTunes comedy uh, top list, I just think like of them. We are the funniest. Absolutely. We got a question from G, John, who says, Dear Hank and John, my cat is asleep on my stomach and I'm late for work. However, I don't want to move because he looks so comfortable. Plus, it is the known rule of cat owners that if the majestic animal decided to name you its bed for a period of time, you lay there and enjoy it. However, I am still late for work. Does this count as a valid excuse for my tardiness? No. But in a just world, it would. Uh, I mean, I think this might be the difference between people who have a deep underlying affection for cats and people who don't understand why we chose to domesticate that particular animal. (laughs) Yeah, I have a deep underlying affection for cats, and I totally, totally sympathize with you, G. Uh, This happens to me all the time. Sometimes I'll be laying in bed and and I will have to pee really bad, and then the cat will come and lay on my bladder, and I'm like, okay, I love you. I'll just lay here with you. Just stop moving. Oh, God. Uh, but you just lay there. That's what you got to do. Uh, however. That's so weird. I can't even tell you from the outside how weird that seems. I, that that seems weirder to me than me eating my cereal with water probably seems to you. I, I can't imagine that that's the case, but I will trust you. Uh, yeah. I think you need to try it with Raisin Bran. I think that might be the issue. I think that maybe you need to do it with like a good pre-sweetened cereal like raisin. Maybe bread. the next time I uh, we do a Patreon live stream, which we did before recording this uh, this one, we did a live stream with our Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John. Uh, I will have that Patreon live stream while eating raisin bran with water. Mm, God, that just sounds delicious. What I wouldn't give for some watered oh. down raisin mm. bran right now. Ah. Today's podcast is brought to you by watered down raisin bran. <laughs> watered down raisin bran. John's number one way to eat raisin bran. This podcast is also brought to you by the complexities of the production of plastics. <laughs> the pl- complexities of productions of plastics, making life better for everyone through science. And today's podcast is also brought to you by expired macaroni. Expired macaroni. I don't care what science says. Throw it away. And today's podcast is brought to you, of course, as always, by Dubious Advice. Dubious Advice, the specialty of a couple of guys who are obsessed with death and not being funny. Don't forget... Our advice is dubious. I just don't want to. I don't want to get in trouble for dispensing such terrible advice. This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house, or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week, and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house, and Thrive Market. 
Target can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Trobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. Uh, Hank, we have another question. It's from, uh, it's from AJ who asks, Dear John and Hank, my friend and I were wondering, what would happen if you had a body of water as big as a star and you dipped the sun into it? Would the energy of the sun just evaporate all the water? Would the water put out the sun? We are very curious. Oh, AJ, I love this question. I love this question so much that I want to call a plasma physicist and and be sure that I'm going to give you the right answer, but I'm going to give you my guess. Um, I, I love, I, ah, wow. Okay. So if you had a ball of water, a body of water as big as a star, that would be a sphere of water in space. And it was the size of a star. Um, it probably would on its own change dramatically before you were able to get it to interact with the star. So the moment that this thing uh, appeared into existence, uh, it would crush down uh, the, the weight, the density of the, the gravity pulling all of those molecules of water together might be, I don't know that this is definitely the case, but might be enough to uh, to initiate fusion. And that ball of water that you are going to try and put out the sun with would become its own star. Now I'm not certain that this would happen because the, the you know like there's a lot of oxygen in there. Oxygen is much more difficult to fuse than hydrogen. There's also uh, it just it might because of the density uh, contract a great deal uh, when when plasma began. It might also though I, I'd be interested to know the density of the sun. I should have looked that up, but I haven't. It might also expand in size and actually become a larger star than the star you were trying to quench. Uh, this is this is the marvelous nature of the universe that a ball of water the size of the sun is not going to be a ball of water for long. It is going to undergo some some magnificent and uh, and truly substantial changes. You know, Hank, sometimes I think like... But then if you did dip the sun into that ball of plasma, it would just become a much bigger star together. You know, Hank, sometimes I find your genuine enthusiasm about science actually infectious. Like, uh, like I start to <laughs> glimpse how great teachers get students excited about science like you seem to genuinely love that question <laughs> uh, whereas i only asked it 
uh, because I wanted uh, I wanted to make some jokes about taking the sun to the beach. <laughs> Like I, you know, like I, I took the sun to the beach, but oh my, I, you, the sunburn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. I see what you take. You take, bring it to a body of water, and you're just like, hey, I like it on the beach. Do you as well? A uh, giant ball of plasma. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right, John. We got a question from Colette. Uh, this is a. This is definitely an opportunity for some dubious advice. Remember, our advice is dubious. She asks, Dear Hank and John, My older sister is currently dealing with depression and has left high school, uh, the same high school that I attend. It's been hard for me to understand what she's going through, so I haven't told anyone. People at school sometimes ask me why she isn't at school or if she's coming back. I'm not really ready to start telling people about what has happened, so I don't know what to say. What do you do when someone asks you a question that you aren't ready to answer? Yeah, I mean, this is a tough one, uh, not least because when you say the truth, uh, it only makes people ask more questions, right? Because the truth is, I'm not ready to talk about it, or it's a family matter, or it's private, or, you know, it's more, I, I want her to be able to talk about it. Ra- I, I don't feel like I should be talking in her place. And all of those answers are only going to make people gossip and and chitter and chatter and um and I, that's difficult i mean i you know i i i took a semester off from college partly because i had whooping cough but partly because of uh, mental health problems um i suspected if i hadn't had whooping cough i still would have had to take the semester off um and uh and when people ask me why uh, you know Later, I was able to talk about it, but you know that's a that's that's direct experience versus mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. a sibling's experience. If people had asked Hank why I was taking a semester off from school, you know it's not really my place. Hank's place to answer, you know. Um, and I, I I mean maybe that's maybe that's something that you can say is is just like I don't I don't feel like it's my place to to talk about it. Um, you know, I love my sister and she's you know getting getting what she you know yeah getting what she needs i don't know that's tough. It's tough it's, it might also be something that'd be good to talk to your parents about because uh obviously they're more familiar with the situation um than the people at school than you know anybody hopefully anybody else in the situation aside from your sister um and uh and also asking your parents if it would be a good idea to talk to your sister about it the uh you know it, it might not be it might just be adding stress to this already very unpleasant situation uh but yeah i, I think that I think that there is no good answer, um, and when you when you and the problem being that telling the truth in this situation, which is the thing that you kind of have to do, is going to create a little bit of drama. It's going to make people feel a little bit uncomfortable, um, and uh, right. and yeah, people are gonna people are gonna probably are gonna guess. Now, I don't know how supportive your uh, friend group is at school. I don't know how how supportive supportive her friend group is at school. Um, but yeah, that it's, uh, from my memories of, 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 uh, of school, it's always difficult to, to deal with stuff because people are, you know, people are all dealing with difficult things, but, um, but, and they are not always kind. I mean, I think that that's one of the issues is that, you you know, if you can count on your, your friends to be kind and discreet, then that's one thing. But a lot of times you can't, I know certainly for, for large swaths of my school life, I couldn't. And, um, and that, that makes everything harder. So, uh, we're sorry. We're sorry that you're going through that. We're sorry that your sister's going through that. Um, and, 
uh, and, and it is tough to hold on to, uh, it can be tough to hold on to those secrets and deal with, with those, those family struggles. As far as empathizing with people with depression, I mean, I think that's a, that's a huge challenge. I, for, to be honest with you, like I, um, I don't, I don't feel like, uh, people empathize particularly well, or even like it's possible to empathize particularly well because, um, because depression is so, uh, specific and interior. I think that it's really, really hard to, it's really hard to empathize with. I, and in general, I think it's hard to empathize with people's pain. There's a great observation in, uh, this book that, uh, uh, I was given, uh, by Mike Rugnetta, uh, called the body in pain by Elaine Scari, I think her name is. And she says, um, to be in pain is to have certainty. Uh, to hear of others' pain is to have doubt. Like your own pain, nothing is more certain than your own pain. But other people's pain is kind of inherently dubious, right? Because like, you don't know what they're really going through. You don't know how it hurts or whether it hurts or where it hurts really. Um, and it's, it's just incredibly difficult to bridge that, uh, that empathy gap. And I think like it's even difficult in art. Art is one of the places where people connect the, the most in terms of, you know, finding ways into empathy. And even in art, I think it's difficult. God, this is a funny comedy podcast. I mean, I just we just kill it. All right, John. I have what I think is an important question that I want to get to. It's from Emma, who asks, Dear Hank and John, in the last episode of the podcast, a listener, not the last one, but in a previous episode, a listener wondered if there was anything in the world that wouldn't lead to widespread death, and John replied, yeah, Purell. But in biology class that I had years ago, we learned that overuse of hand sanitizers could in fact be working against us. If hand sanitizers kill 99.99% of all bacteria, that 0.1% that survived would have some genetic property that helped it live on and would pass that immunity on down the generations until it evolved an antibiotic-resistant superbug so no hand sanitizers in the world would be able to combat blah, 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 you get the idea so in the end couldn't purell lead to our widespread death after all sorry john no emma i have wonderful news yes. which is that purell does not work the way that like antibiotic soaps work yes um so the 0.01 percent of bacteria it doesn't kill it doesn't kill because it doesn't touch yes um uh, the way that uh, alcohol-based hand sanitizers work is different from the way that uh, other like antibiotics work. And while it is possible that someday, uh, I guess, bacteria could develop resistance to alcohol, um, <laughs> they have not shown a great resistance, a great ability to do it over the millennia. Uh, so it's good. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's uh, it's. Based on how alcohol uh, affects bacteria, the, the physical way that it affects them, it's impossible for bacteria to develop a resistance. It affects them physically. It's not most most like antibiotics that you take or uh, the antibiotics in antibacterial soap uh, work in various chemical ways. But this is a physical reaction. It's basically the same thing as it, it boiling them uh, or heating them up a lot. The, it it actually causes their cell membranes to rupture. And that is a that's the thing that happens, and that's why if you get alcohol in a in a wound, uh, that hurts very bad because it's doing the same thing to your cells, and it will do that to any cell on Earth, um, unless a bacteria evolved a, like a cell wall, and then it would not be a bacteria anymore. Uh, speaking of which, Hank, we should point out that several listeners uh, have written in to say 
that Purell does cause widespread death, of course. It causes the extremely widespread death of bacteria. Oh, that is a great point, John. That it's just, it's absolutely point. terrible for them, and, and uh, seemingly in a way that they have no defense against. No, never, and never will, which is excellent news because I am in favor of the widespread death of uh, of of infectious bacteria. I guess I am too. Yeah. I mean, I just, I find infectious bacteria to be one of the least likable organisms. (laughs) It's on my all time top 10 least favorite organisms. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is infectious bacteria that damage humans. There is some complexity here in that uh, some of the bacteria that cause disease also uh, are part of, of healthy balanced uh, microbiomes uh, as long as they don't get out of balance um, or as long as they're in the right place in your body. So there is complexity. You don't want all of infectious bacteria to to not exist. You know, E. coli exist in our, in our uh, guts all the time and E. coli causes disease, but also is just a normal thing to have in your body. Um, I also... I also have another update. We've had a lot of updates, but but I I feel like I need to get to this one because it's been a few episodes now, and I feel bad about it. A few episodes back, someone asked if uh, if there were Earth eclipses on the moon, and uh, and I didn't. I waffled on that, and I wasn't sure. And I should have just said, what is the obvious truth is that yes, obviously it does happen. There are Earth eclipses on the moon all the time. They are what we call a lunar eclipse. Um, some people said that that happens every new moon, but that is not, in fact, what's happening during a new moon. That's just when the side of the moon that's being lit up is facing away from us. Uh, but when, when a lunar eclipse happens, that is when the shadow of the Earth passes over the moon. And during that time, if you were on the moon, you would be seeing uh, the Earth come between you and the sun. And the, the Earth would be blocking out uh, the sun, and that would be a, a Terran eclipse, I guess. And you would be getting... Uh, You'd be you'd be shaded by the the Earth, and that happens like four to like more than four times a year, four to seven, I think. So it happens all the time. Don't One know. thing I'd just like to point out, Hank, is that when that question came up, I very confidently said stated that indeed uh, there are such eclipses. And then you were wibbly wobbly waffly waffly, and as usual, I was right on science, <laughs> and you your wibbly wobbling did nothing; it accomplished nothing. All, all your wibbly wobblying accomplished is you having to post this update. And in six weeks, when you have to come back to the podcast and say, turns out that you shouldn't eat macaroni a year after it is expired because some poor soul out there got botulism because of your extremely dubious advice, I will again look like the genius that I am. <laughs> Hank, I am in no great hurry to move on to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, but I am afraid that we have reached the point in the podcast when we must. I think that is correct. Well, I have only terrible news, so perhaps you should give me news. Oh, no, I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, I have good news, I think, though, of course, as with, you know, interplanetary science, it turns out to be complicated news and maybe not news at all. But basically, uh, there's been a there's been a a formation on Mars that's been studied for for years now um, because it looks a lot like the uh, the kinds of formations that we see around um, hot springs on Earth. And this is probably an area that was geologically active and that had hot springs on Mars at one point. And hot springs, of course, are an excellent place for life to exist. There are multiple different ways that uh, that that life in hot springs can get energy. They can get it from the heat of the water. They can get it from minerals in the water that have uh, that have themselves uh, extracted in one way or co- or contain the heat from the, from, you know, geothermal processes. And you can also, of course, just get it from the sun. 
the uh, so so these are very interesting areas. They're worth uh, worthy of a lot of study. Um, there are microscopic features on some of the rocks in this location on Mars that uh, that look they they call them cauliflower like. So imagine a cauliflower, little tiny cauliflowers all over these rocks. And they've been studying these and and have been trying to find analogs of uh, of these kinds of formations that uh, have formed on Earth through geologic processes. And they haven't found any, but they do find at hot springs that there are very similar shaped rocks, shaped like crystals that form uh, that are formed by biological life, by microorganisms, and uh, and and the fact that they they have seen these very similar shaped rocks uh, on Mars and near hot springs and around hot springs on Earth, and that we cannot find a geologic way where those same similar uh, structures would be formed is uh, very exciting, as you might imagine, and uh, has been is being discussed very actively right now. Uh, of course, there's really no way to tell for sure unless we are able to bring a sample back from Mars, study that more carefully in a laboratory, um, or take a person to Mars uh, along with a laboratory with which to study those samples. But it's very exciting um, and and sort of like continues to point to the, uh, you know, what we often find in interplanetary science and what we continue to find uh, as we look for as we look for and discover more uh, exoplanets, that you know, there's obviously something very special and unique about planet Earth and the life there, and and humans in particular. But um, things turn out to not be as rare as we think they should be, um, and that the possibility and and the fact that there has been now we've seen flowing water on Mars, and the possibility that there uh, was once life on Mars could really uh, be the kind of thing that we are going to find out within my lifetime, and that is extremely exciting. So what you're saying, Hank, is that there is a small possibility that there are living cauliflowers on Mars. There's definitely a small possibility, a very, very, very small possibility that there are, there are living cauliflowers on Mars. That's just incredibly exciting. I don't, I don't blame you for having, uh, having gotten excited over that news. Um, <laughs> meanwhile... On on Earth, to, to be clear, when I say very small, I I mean I mean just just astronomically the the more zeros than you could put in your brain. Yeah. Uh, after the decimal point, kind of probability. Yeah. No, you just described to me Martian cauliflower, and it does. I'll, I I guess my main concern is that it doesn't sound delicious, but. Um, <laughs> And I'm I'm suspicious of any food grown near a hot spring, but uh, I'm excited to find out what develops. I will say that I am deeply concerned if there is life on Mars. Um, that uh, it it it's just going to completely take over this podcast. Uh, <laughs> that's my main concern. I think that it would be bad for our podcast if there were life on Mars, but but time will tell. Meanwhile. On Earth, life has evolved to such an extent that uh, there is a species capable of knowing itself and fathoming the universe. That species is called Homo sapiens. It is, so far as we know, unique among 
uh, all the species that have ever lived in the entire universe. And that species is capable of intense and profound collaboration. Uh, and one of the ways that it collaborates, one of the most beautiful and interesting ways, is football. Uh, and <laughs> the species has evolved an ability to not only play uh, football in a collaborative manner, but also to own football teams in a collaborative manner, uh, as AFC Wimbledon is owned uh, in equal parts by all of its fans. You, Hank, can join uh, the Don's Trust at AFC Wimbledon's website. You're going to get there eventually, right? You're going to get there. You're going to get to the news. It's only $35 a year, and you can be an owner of AFC Wimbledon just like I am. You'll own the same percentage of the club that I do. I am getting to the news from AFC Wimbledon. It is not great. Okay. Uh, we played Yeovil Town, which is right down. It seems like, it, which I believe is a fictional uh, place. <laughs> I believe it's in Middle Earth. But um, they do not play Yeovil Town. They are not uh, high in the table, John. Yeovil Town. They are not a. They are not high in no. the table. They were lower in the table, but then they beat us. Oh, um, uh, it was a three-two uh, game in the end. We led on two separate occasions, mm. uh, but Yeovil came back from one-nil down. Came back from two-one down. And then, uh, and then won the game 3-2. This is bad for us on many levels. It's the kind of game that we're expected to win playing Yeovil Town, a fictional uh, place uh, <laughs> at home. You would expect to win that game. Uh, it puts us 10th in the table. Uh, look, we're 22 points clear of relegation. The main goal for this season is, of course, to stay in the Football League. But uh, we're now three points off the playoffs. So it's a definitely a disappointing result. Not what we were looking for. But the arc of history is long, Hank, and it bends toward Wimbledon. Well, and also you have a lot of time to make up those three points, right? Uh, yeah, but I mean, if you can't get three points against Yeovil, it's, 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 there's, there's some deeper concerns. Mm, yeah, well, you know, there's also just, you know, the universal dice. Sometimes uh, first seeds lose to 16 seeds. It happens. That's right. No, it's definitely true. And I think we've got to, uh, we've got to stay hopeful. Um, I, I am, you know, I'm sort of perpetually in a state of concern over AFC Wimbledon. I'm not the kind of person who, uh, I don't know. I, I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm a worrier, Hank. And like, I can't help but look at AFC Wimbledon's remaining fixtures and feel, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, deeply concerned. We play our next game against Bristol Rovers this weekend. That will have already happened by the time this, this podcast uh, is uploaded. So uh, people of the future, I can only hope that we have gotten a result against fourth place Bristol Rovers, uh, but uh, the time will tell. Yes, that would be excellent. You could move them down in the rankings while moving yourself up. It's a big game. It's an important game. Everybody get excited about the game and check on the results of the game when you hear the podcast ending as it is doing right now. Uh, John, what did we learn today? Well, Hank, we learned uh, that you really try hard to care about AFC Wimbledon, but you just deeply <laughs> don't. <laughs> I did my best. Uh, I'm sorry. Did I did I step on your news? Was there more? Was there more to come? No, it's fine. Uh, we learned that uh, we waste a lot of plastic making DVD covers, and we are an inherently wasteful uh, group of people on this earth right now. But also that due to the nature of the manufacture of plastics, it's complicated. And we learned that Purell is different from antibiotic hand soap. Uh, in ways that are very encouraging to John. That's true. Uh, and finally, we learned that uh, while the world 
is not yet at a place where a cat sleeping on your stomach is a is a proper excuse for the tardiness of your uh, arrival at your your source of of employment. It it may one day. Nope. Wait, why are you late for work? Oh, because an animal that we chose to domesticate several thousand years ago that weighs about 12 pounds didn't want me to stand up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's never going to be an acceptable excuse uh, here at the Indianapolis branch of Dear Hank and John. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean if I, if if a if a person said that to me, I would and and I believed them. I'm not going to you're not allowed to have this excuse every day, but I would be like I understand. I absolutely understand. So and they're so comfortable. They look so comfy. And they just I mean, if anybody at the Indianapolis offices of dear John and Hank shows up with that excuse, they aren't just it isn't just an unexcused absence. They're fired. Oh wow. Wow. Yeah, you're fought, you're out. All right. Well, we 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 operate our businesses very differently. It's good uh, it's good to have different ways of doing things to see which way is more productive and uh, and which place people enjoy working more. And everybody can discuss which office is best. Anyway, Hank, uh, this podcast is edited by the hardworking, underappreciated <laughs> and overall brilliant Nicholas Jenkins. Our theme music is by Gunnarola. <laughs> We're laughing because we screwed up so many times in this podcast that the hardworking, underappreciated Nick Jenkins yeah, gonna basically have to work. has had to craft a podcast yeah. from scratch yeah, using just like previous incidences of our voices. Yeah, he's molding it from the raw clay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you um, all this is for the listening. Wave, he's scratching the waveform into cuneiform. Thanks to everybody for listening. And as we say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, to be awesome. awesome.